We're reading from Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea, the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, 
Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again that you are a God who speaks and speaks powerfully to us. We're going to hear you speak again and again through this passage. And we thank you that you've spoken finally through your son, Jesus, and that we have your word spoken to us through your word, the Bible. So we ask for ears to hear. Help us to lift the blinders of our eyes with this familiar passage to uh, not be in danger of um, glossing over it. Help us to see this passage afresh, to see what's there to do so in ways that will ultimately help us understand the work of your son, Jesus, as well. So we pray, Father, that you'd bless our time here and help me to speak and preach clearly from this as I ought, for we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that all of us want order and goodness in our lives. This is something that all of us, that's in all of us, that says that we need. There is something that says that we need and something that when we look around in our world, we know that it ought to be there, right? When we do look around, I'm sure we see a lot of ugliness. You turn on the news this week, and what did you see? More updates about the war in Ukraine, and especially about how citizens are now being targeted. We might have heard about the rain that hit the northern parts of New South Wales again, which again forced people to evacuate uh, the second time in almost as many weeks. And who here is also tired of hearing about the whole Will Smith slapping Chris Rock saga, right? There is a lot of ugliness in the news this week. And we see it in the world out there, you know, rottenness, decay, death. But it's not just out there. We can see it in here, in our own lives, in our relationships, in our friendships, in the way that we conduct our own thoughts. Yet at the same time, we also see glimpses of goodness, of beauty, of peace, of order and, and life, tenderness and affection. We see these moments often enough to remind us that this world isn't completely filled with ugliness and garbage. There is truth and love on show as well. Now, what do we make of this mix that we see? How do we kind of work out how these two things relate together? Or maybe we can just shrug our shoulders and just kind of say that's life. Or perhaps we can see these glimpses of goodness as a pointer to something more, Uh, an echo from some good in the past that continues to reverberate through to today, an echo that calls out a memory of a distant history that tells us that there was a time when none of the bad stuff we experienced existed, none of the disorder and the chaos in our world and in our lives was present, A, a time when the world out there And our inner world of our emotions and our inner lives where there was peace and goodness and love and order. 
Well, that time did exist. Welcome to Genesis 1 and 2. Over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the first 12 chapters of Genesis. Uh, These chapters lay down some foundational ideas for the entire Bible. Now, over the next three weeks in particular, we'll look at one chapter each week. This week, chapter 1 and a bit of 2. Mostly chapter 2 next week, and then chapter 3 the week after. And then after that, we begin to take uh, slightly bigger chunks. But for most of us, these chapters are quite familiar. Would you agree? Anyone who has started a Bible reading program tried to begin it on January 1st. You've read Genesis 1 probably 20 times, right? It's super familiar, yes? I want to say that actually puts us in a potentially dangerous place. When it comes to reading the Bible, familiarity is the enemy of observation. If you think you're familiar with it, if you know it so well... You just begin to gloss over it. You begin to tick things off. You go, oh, yeah, day one, the creation of light. That's right. Day two, creation of the heavens and the seas. Yes, I know this. It's good, 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 good. Familiarity hinders us from observing the things that are there, things that we actually might miss. So with that warning flagged, are we ready to observe again what is actually here in Genesis 1? I hope you are. But before we do that, we've got to do another flag. I've got to flag something else. Um, it always feels like I'm getting the controversial passages. I think Ben, I'm sure Ben is tweaking the roster. Um, you know, this brief excursus is a highly debated passage. I don't know if you noticed, that's the same little sub-point that I put into the Revelation 20 uh, sermon a few weeks ago. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you've probably heard that Genesis 1 is a highly debated passage. I'm not going to go through all the nuts and bolts of the debate, but here here it is generally in a nutshell. The issue with Genesis 1, and actually, in fact, Genesis 1 to 12, is how do you read it? Do we read the days in Genesis 1 as long or short? How do we interpret the creation of man and woman in Genesis 2 in the light of evolutionary science? Was Was the flood global? How global was it in Genesis 6 to 9? And does that also contradict the science? Were Adam and Eve real people? And were was everyone really descended from them? Now, those are all good questions. If you've asked that question, I want to say that's a good question. I also want to say I don't think Genesis answers that question. From everything that I've read and how I've read, uh, I think what I've noticed is that how you read and interpret Genesis 1 to 12 on these questions relies as much on how you view the science. Science begins to lead the way in which you interpret the scriptures. Now, I want to, let's clear up a few things before we dive into the passage. First, the Bible was not written to satisfy 21st century modern scientific questions. Genesis and the Bible have their own set of questions that they are trying to answer and its own purpose for writing. So the task of the Bible reader is to find those questions and purposes and let that inform how we interpret what we read. And if we have other questions that don't seem to be answered, we need to humbly hold those questions in tension. Second, when it comes to reading up on these debates and when it comes to engaging with the science, I think we need to be very careful how we speak. Let me draw your attention to this slightly modified quote from Augustine, one of the early church fathers. If unbelievers find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and hear Christians maintain foolish opinions about their books... How are they going to believe our books concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? Now, that's a powerful quote. It reminds us of the need to be humble as we engage. I am not a scientist. 
And I'm guessing that most of you guys are not scientists either, even if you are studying a science degree. You're not quite there yet. Right? So that means that if I am talking about the science with a friend, or if I'm chatting with one of the teens at this church about things that they're learning in school, I need to be very careful that I'm not speaking on topics that are beyond my expertise, or speaking on topics that I know very little about. Because I want to be able to preach Jesus. Right? No one was ever converted because they lost a debate about evolution versus science, uh, evolution versus Genesis. Right? I want to preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in our evangelism, that's much more solid ground to be on. Number three, we need to be careful then not to play theological dominoes. Right? Some argue that if you don't believe Genesis is literal six days, then that means you can't literally read what the Bible says, and that means you can't trust what the Bible says about the resurrection. You see how these dominoes keep falling over? I want to say that's a very unhelpful and false game to play. Finally, and I hope this helps our thinking as well, most of the questions in the Genesis versus science debate revolve around two main questions. How was everything made and when was everything made? Now, those are good questions, as I said before, but I think Genesis chapter 1 is actually silent on those questions. Rather, the questions that Genesis is answering is who made everything and why was everything made? So if, you're gonna, if we shift our questions to the questions that Genesis asks then I think we'll be better readers of what is actually there. Okay? Excursus over. Let's head back into the passage and make some observations. We begin with verse 1, with the God who is there. Now, notice that it doesn't start, in the beginning there was nothing. That is a common misconception. The biblical author begins with God, the self-existent creator of everything. Right? Here is God, the God of Israel, existing from eternity past, now creating everything, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Notice also that God creates out of nothing. Right? There is no pre-existing material that he uses and reshapes. Rather, things come into being because of him. Now, why is this important from the get-go? Right? Every religion, it's important because every religion and every belief system has an origin story, a story that helps us make sense of reality. Even secular humanists and atheists has, ha, argues for a beginning, but sometimes it does come across a little bit strange. Right? Out of nothing, for no reason, somehow everything was created, and that bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into thinking moral beings. I think it takes a, a fair bit of faith to believe that kind of origin story. But remember, Genesis was written to Israel, the people of God, at a time, and at the time, uh, think about who they were surrounded by. Especially think about that time of exile to Babylon. Their nation has lost to Babylon. The gods of Babylon, it seems, have finally overcome the God of Israel. Right? And when they're heading into that land, they hear the creation stories over there. But Genesis is saying that those creation stories are not true. The Babylonian, the Babylonian creation story begins with multiple gods in existence competing against each other and creating the world out of the dead body of one of the fallen gods, right? There's this massive war and struggle that happens. One of the gods dies. Another god comes in and slices it all up, makes humans out of one part, the earth out of another, and all that kind of jazz. It's a, a story filled with chaos. And enter Genesis 1, which says something completely different. There is one true god, their God, 
Yahweh. He is the only God. He creates out of no pre-existing material, but powerfully creates out of nothing. And so this chapter formed a powerful alternative to the ones that they were probably hearing. Do you believe that, though? Do you believe what Genesis is saying here? Do you believe that there is a God who is self-existent, who, from whom everything is created? And if you do, then we must also believe that everything owes a debt to God for being made. We are creations and creatures. He is the creator. We owe everything of our existence to him. In verse 2, you'll notice that the earth that God has made is without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. Now, that word there, deep, also carries a sense of chaos and turmoil, right? We're presented with an earth that lacks order and structure and content, We read that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. God is about to do something with this. And then in chapters 1, uh, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 3, we see God acting. And he acts in a very highly stylized manner. Now, for the reading, uh, from the reading, you should have heard some very familiar word patterns, right? The day begins with, and God said, let there be something, and it was so. We see God creating, and in the first three days, God names the parts of creation. And then we read that God looks at what he has created and calls it good. And then we have a refrain at the end of each day. There was evening and there was morning, the first day or the second day or the third day, etc. There is an obvious pattern to the way that things are being written here, which leads to a big question. What are we reading? What kind of literature and genre of, of writing are we reading? Now, I understand that uh, international YFs, the international students among us, are going through a Genesis Bible study. And one of the things that you concluded in the Genesis 1 uh, study was that this is poetry. Let me nuance that a little bit, okay? Let me first say that I don't think that Genesis 1 is simple narrative. It's not a straightforward, just simple story, right? The repetition of the phrases indicates that there's something else going on. I want to nuance this idea that this is poetry. Biblical poetry emphasizes metaphor and symbols. And I don't think we're meant to read Genesis 1 as being metaphorical or symbolic of something. But it does contain very strong poetic elements. It can't escape that, right? All of this patterning that's going on. So I like to, this is my personal preference, I like to call it stylized narrative highly stylized narrative. This is basically the difference. Genesis 1 is basically the difference between a BBC documentary, which is a flat retelling of facts, and a Hollywood epic movie on the same topic, right? Uh, We've got this Hollywood epic story that has truth to it for sure, but it's a story told in a particular way for a particular point. God is telling us something about who he is and why he's creating everything. And as we read and observe, there are two big things that come out. We notice that God is creating everything powerfully, but also in an orderly way, and he creates good things, a good and orderly creation. Let's tease this out a bit. First, everything is made with power by his spoken word. Again, there is no pre-existing material that God is simply reshaping. He speaks, and out of the formless and chaotic earth comes these things, He speaks and light is made. He speaks and land springs up. He speaks and animals come into existence. The absolute power of God here is on display. 
He merely speaks and things are created. Compared to humans, we are nothing. I speak, and sometimes it takes a long thing, long time for anything to happen, especially when my kids, when I'm asking my kids to do something on school holidays. Right? I call out Jaden. He goes, yeah? I call out Jaden. He says, yeah? I call out Jaden, come here, and he's like, oh, oh my gosh, why do you think I was calling you? Right? I am not as powerful as my creator. Second, everything is made in an orderly way. I don't know if you were struck by this on the first reading, but you notice how, do you notice how everything is so calm in this passage? Right? God speaks, things are made, we move on. There's no chaotic battle between opposing forces. There's no resistance from the creation to say, no, I don't want to do that, but then God has to wrestle it into order. There's no random blind chance dependent on random atoms smashing into each other and then survival of the fittest. There is a clear sequence of events and a mirroring of the creation order, of all that creation activity. Here's what I mean by mirroring. Days one to three mirror days four to six. You'll notice in days one to three, God creates different realms, different spaces. And then on days four to six, he fills those spaces. So on day one, he creates light, day and night. And then on day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. On day two, he creates the sky and the sea. And then on day five, he creates the birds and the sea creatures. On day three, he creates the dry land. On day six, he creates land, animals, and humans. Here you go for those who want to take a photo. Take it now or forever hold your peace. Right? Look at that patterning and that mirroring. I think this is another indication that we should not be so quick to think of the days of creation as literal and sequential. Right? Yet you cannot have evening and morning without the sun and the moon. Right? But they don't exist until day four. Something else is going on here rather than just reading it as a flat story. The emphasis is that God is the one at work and he is ordering everything in creation. Everything is orderly because order, not chaos, reflects who God is. Everything is in its place, everything doing what it's supposed to be doing and is good in his eyes. And again, it reminds us that each of these elements is a creation, not a God. The Egyptians had a God for nearly everything. Same with the ancient Near Eastern cultures of Babylon and Assyria and Persia. For Israel, living in the middle of this idolatrous world, this chapter comes along and says, no. No, God is the one true creator. He is the creator of everything. There is a clear distinction between creator and creation. And everything that God makes is good. Do you notice that when he creates each element and it's done, it's almost as though he steps back and he looks over his work and he declares it is good. There's a delight from God at each step here. And you know what that's like. Do you remember the first time you cooked an egg properly? Right? When you think about your cooking adventures, the first time you cooked an egg, it was a disaster. And then the first time you cooked it really properly, you stepped back. Everyone did this. You stepped back and you went, that's good. There's a delight there. God seems to be doing the same thing with every step of creation. These things are good because God declares it so. 
He is the originator of goodness. All goodness, even now, is an echo of God's supreme goodness. And then into this goodness also comes blessing. You notice in verse 22 and verse 28 that God blesses the birds and the sea creatures and he blesses humans. Be fruitful and multiply. Again, we're being reminded that God is the one who blesses and gives fertility. It wasn't another God who, we, who needed to be worshipped in order to be blessed, right? God was the one who did it, the one who creates everything, who did it in an orderly way, who brought order out of chaos, creates what is good, and is the one who blesses fertility. And then you hit day six, and then you look at day six, and it travels from verse 24 through to the end of chapter 1, verse 31. This is the longest section in the chapter. The pattern of creation that we're so used to breaks up at this point, which indicates that this is a part of creation of peak interest. Right? The creation of the land animals prepares us for the apex of creation. Right? The land animals are divided into three categories. You can see them there. Right? Livestock, right? animals used for farming and ones to be domesticated. Creeping things like insects and lizards and mice and then beasts of the earth, which are larger animals that can't be domesticated. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list since you know, it can be hard to categorize some animals. Where does my pet cat fit into this? Uh, but you can see that the list is broken up primarily in regards to human activity, how humans will engage with these animals. And so we come to verse 26, and we get a surprising statement. It's massive. God says, verse 26, let us make man in our image. Who is God speaking to here? I remember years ago, when just before my brother became a Christian, we were at a, a camp together, and the speaker did, uh, spoke from these passages. And my brother picked up on this, and he said, who is God speaking to? Why is he speaking in plural? Is God schizophrenic? No, he's not. But who is he referring to? Some have suggested that he's speaking to the angels, but that doesn't quite make sense. Angels do not participate in creation work, and humans are not made in the image of angels. Uh, us here, the plural, is a bit of a mystery at the time of the Old Testament. When the fullness of the New Testament has come, we get full understanding of it. God here is speaking of his Trinitarian self, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are all present at the creation of the world. The Father who speaks the words of creation, the Word, the Son himself, the one doing the creating. The Spirit that we saw back in verse 2 hovering over the face of the deep. Humanity is made in the image, reflects the image of the Trinity. Because of this, humanity stands out as special from all of creation. I don't think it's an understatement to say that humanity is the apex of God's created works. Right? No other part of creation and no other creature or animal is created with such special focus. And we'll see this drawn out even more in Genesis chapter 2. The idea that humans are just animals like the rest of the animal kingdom is not a biblical idea. But what does it mean then to be made in the image of God? Heaps of ink has been spilled on this. Uh, there's probably a couple of things going on in this phrase. Uh, so much ink has been spilled on it. Don't Google what that means because your computer will explode. Right? First, it was commonly understood in the ancient Near East that the king was the visible representative of your deity. Right? The king was a god and ruled on behalf of, the, of your god. 
And so when you get to verse 26 and you see that humans are to have dominion over the animals, that kind of gives further weight to this idea that humans are representing God in this world, right? Unique here in Genesis, however, compared to every other uh, nation surrounding them, was that Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, we see both male and female are created in the image of God. You see that there in verse 27, the repetition of the idea is inescapable. There is an equality between the sexes in terms of image bearing, in terms of this ruling and dominion. Both sexes equally represent God. Secondly, to be an image bearer has commonly been understood to mean certain special characteristics that God shares, especially with man and no other animal. Right? The special capacity to reason and have morals between right and wrong, like language, the development of language, relationships governed by love and commitment, creativity in all forms of art. Yeah, I saw recently that you can buy a painting from an elephant or a dolphin to help out a specific charity. Elephants and dolphins might be taught how to paint, but only because human beings taught them how to do that in the first place. To be made in the image of God probably means both of these things together, to rule and to display God's special characteristics of God. To be made in God's image is a powerfully distinct and wondrous privilege. In verse 28, we're told three special things that God has in store for humans. First, we read that he blessed them. As, we, as the next chapter will show, man and woman live in a privileged relationship with God himself. They're, they're not just given mere existence. They're not just surviving. They are in a rich and deep life-giving presence of God. Next, God blesses man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. Right? God is seeking not just more creatures, but more image bearers, more of those who will reflect and carry on the duties given to them by God. Now, this instruction here in verse 28 is the basis for the biblical view that raising faithful children to know and serve God is part of God's plan for all of us. God's plan here at the beginning is to populate the earth with those who know him and are his representatives in the world. Finally, in verse 28, they're also told to subdue the earth. This could be taken as a, a mandate to use and abuse the earth to whatever ends we see fit. But in context, that's not right. The command to subdue the earth is not a command to exploit the earth for greedy gains. Right? To be an image bearer, remember, is to do his work to care for the world in a responsible way that reflects God's care for this world. A representative represents their boss or their company. If an employee does something bad, then that reflects poorly on the company itself. And so image bearers of God represent God and are to subdue the earth in ways that glorify God. And at the end of all of this, as God sits back and he finishes the creation of man, he declares everything isn't just good, but very good. It's done. Every piece of creation has now fallen into place. Everything that has been created and prepared by God, he has now put into all, all into order and it fits perfectly. And so God looks on, he smiles, and everything is very good. And while many things in our world today do not appear to be good, Right? This was not so at the beginning. We're going to find out in a few weeks in Genesis 3 why things have changed so much. But for now, for now, at the end of chapter 1, we have this simple truth. Everything is very good. God's creation and his purposes for creation are overflowing with goodness. 
Humanity may be the apex of God's land animals, but humans are not the climax of creation. The climax of creation, the creation story, comes in chapters 2, verses 1 to 3. This is the ultimate purpose, the end goal of creation, rest with God. So read with me now, read, 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 read with me now, verses two, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I want you to notice a few key things here. I want you to notice that in day seven, there is no evening and there is no morning. Unlike the previous six days, which marked by that, this seventh day doesn't appear to end. It seems to be eternal. Second, notice the repetition of the phrases. Twice we read that he rested from his work. Three times we are reminded that it's, work, it's the work that he had done. The repetition here isn't to say that God is now just weary and tired from all his work, right? Six days and he's just getting to the end, he's exhausted. No, it's not saying that. And it's not saying that he's completely done, like God is now doing nothing. It's saying that he is resting from this particular work of creation. It's finished. He's done all the creating. There's no more atoms to be made. There are no more things to be made. This is like getting that work project done, or especially if it's a big one. Or remember being a student and writing those big essays, right? Once, you, once the project is done, once the essay is handed in, you rest. You stop working on it. Anyone here who finished an essay, handed it in, took a five-minute tea break, and then went, okay, let me have a look at that again. Let me change that footnote. Let me rework that structure. Oh, let me add that, a few more things in. No, no one does that. Because when you finish with it, you're done. You rest from the, you are in effect resting from that work. God rests because he has finished his creation work. It's done. But it's not just that he rests. In verse 3, God blesses the seventh day and makes it holy. He sets that day apart as special, not just for him, but for his creation, his creatures, his people. The idea of resting with God comes up later in the Ten Commandments and is built upon what happens here. The rest that God enjoys here in Genesis is meant to be a rest that he invites his people into to enjoy with him. See, this is what all of God's creation work is heading towards. Everything that God has made, every part of creation, and especially his image bearers, are to enjoy God's presence. Genesis 1 is a simple and familiar story, right? God creates a good world powerfully by his words and in an orderly way. He creates humanity personally to represent him and to reflect goodness to the world with the ultimate goal of being in his presence and resting with him. This passage is a celebration of God as a powerful and good creator of everything. It's a reminder to the Israelites and to us that God is the only true creator of everything. There are no other gods beside him. This passage is a call to embrace, rest with God as the purpose of our creation. But, while this is a familiar picture, it also feels so distant, doesn't it? 
we read it and we want to yell, yes, we want this. This is what we want. We want to know a life that is filled with goodness, of celebrating God, of resting with him. But we know that life is not like that. Now, again, we know it's not like that because of Genesis chapter 3. But the good news is that the picture of Genesis 1 is not just simply a, an echo of the past that is just lingering and remains there. The gospel message is that Jesus has come, and he comes not only to restore what we are missing back to the way things were, but to something actually even better. See, the opening picture of the Bible, the Bible prepares us, it prepares us for an even better and brighter future to come. The glorious images we saw in the past few weeks in Revelation 21 and 22. A place where sin and death are no more. A place where sin and death will never threaten again. The place where God and his people dwell together in joy and harmony forever. And the good news is that this is all achieved with another image bearer who has come to earth. We're going to see shortly that man and woman fail to live up to their role as image bearers. But the good news is that another image bearer has come but this time, the perfect one. He, speaking of Jesus, is the Im image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Yeah, Paul says another similar thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus is the image of God. He is the one who perfectly reflects God. The writer to the Hebrews says the same thing. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the perfect image bearer, the perfect human, the perfect representative of God on earth. When you look at Jesus, you not only saw the face of God, but the image of who we were meant to be. And more than that, not only did God create this world with a word, but we learn that Jesus is that word. The Apostle John says it in his gospel from the very beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And everything was made with that word. <laughs> We learn that Jesus is that word. He is God's word made flesh, and Jesus not only created everything, but he also sustains it. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything is sustained by Jesus. Every atom and molecule and cell remains intact because of the will of Jesus. Every breath that you subconsciously take, every heartbeat that you unknowingly beat along is sustained by his good pleasure and will. Jesus is the perfect image bearer, the one who created everything and sustains everything. And then what does he do? He gives his life for us. He dies so that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. It is through Jesus that the Genesis 1 picture comes full circle. Uh, the echo of the past is made real. It's materialized into an even brighter and better eternal future. And you just simply receive it by trusting and following Jesus. Will you do that today? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's fair, right, to say 
that we all want goodness and order in our lives? Do you want that as well? We all know that chaos is bad, chaos in our lives and experiences and the chaos and turmoil internally. We know that's not good. But in Jesus Christ, they can be brought back to order. Fully and finally, in the second coming of Jesus, will he set all things right? I thought it was brilliant, fitting, that the final words in Revelation 21, uh, 22, the final words in Revelation 22 are not the words that God will wipe away every tear. The final words are, come, Lord Jesus, come. Those are the last words because we are to yearn for his coming. We are to look for his coming. We are to live now as though he is coming. And when he does, then we will know he will wipe away all disorder and chaos and tears and he will bring us back to this place of order and goodness forevermore. So are we yearning for that day? Are we living for it even today? If you're not a believer here, someone who doesn't uh, say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, or maybe you're not exactly sure about it, can I ask you, this picture that we have here of life and creation and goodness in Genesis 1, is that a picture that you can get on board with? Is that a picture that you want? Right? Is this picture of goodness, of blessing, something that you find appealing? Uh, even in the ugliness of life, if you can still see and appreciate the good that we can see, do we, do we find that goodness pointing us to this greater goodness? Friends, if you can see all that, I want to say that it's merely an echo of the past. If we can see goodness today, it's an echo of the past. It's a flag pointing you to something bigger. A future, a real-life future experience of overflowing and never-ending goodness. And it's available through trusting Jesus and living for Him. What you find out, when, will you find out more about this? Again, in the coming weeks, we're going to be going through Genesis 3 to explain why life is so messed up. But for now, let's just focus on this picture of goodness and let the good, glimpses of goodness that you experience now open the door to eternal goodness found in God's presence through Jesus. And if you do follow Christ today, then let us keep yearning for this life to come. Let us not grow weary or faint in our faith. Let us enjoy these good moments that we get to have, but use them to encourage each other that these are temporal and to keep pursuing the eternal life to come. There are eternal pleasures with God waiting for us. So let's not be content with temporal pleasures, of temporal goodness, of echoes of the past. And as a way to do that, to remind ourselves of the future to come, one way to do that is to rest one day in seven. Now, this application here is a bit more of a head and heart application than it is a hands one. There are very few details about what rest looks like. I think part of what Genesis 1 and 2 say is that rest looks like being in God's presence, or finding refreshment there. But how does that look like day to day? Those are those details that we can sort out. But I want to start an important conversation because I want to ask, firstly, are you convinced that God has made us for rest one day in seven? Right? This creation story forms the basis for the Sabbath laws to come. Now, the Sabbath commands are not the same today. 
right? The, the, Jesus himself transforms these Sabbath principles and commands. So he gives us a lot more freedom in terms of thinking through rest and how to, to go about it. But, and then ultimately gives us eternal rest in him. But the idea I'm putting forward today that isn't a legal demand. But I do want to say that I think we've been internally programmed for it. We are all of us creatures, not the creator. We are not built to go 24-7. But who am I talking to here today? I'm talking to busy people, right? Uh, how many of us have deadlines, assignments, and exams to study for? We've got some young families here with restless kids, constantly restless, am I right? Friends, we've got friends to catch up with. We've got people with endless chores at home to be done. Am I right to guess that finding one day off in seven to take off completely, free of chores and errands, is that something you find near impossible to do? So what do you do? We just keep working, right? Students here, we just keep studying day and night, every day. The workers run around doing heaps of stuff when they aren't working. Families fill in extra time with activities. We all live with busyness and activity and ongoing activity. And let me guess, all of us are tired. So here's this challenge at the end. God blessed rest. He made it holy. He set apart it apart for man to rest with him because that's what we were created for. If you say that you can't rest, if you say that there's just too much on your plate, let me ask some questions. Are you rejecting how God made you? Are you pushing against your design? Are you preaching to yourself that you are the creator and not the creature? And maybe it's time we begin this overdue conversation of what rest will look like. But for now, I just want to put the question out there as we end this first Genesis sermon. Are we in the habit of regularly, once a week, resting? Because it seems to me that we're designed for this. It seems to me that all creation is purposed towards this. Are we wanting to do that? In Genesis 1 to 2, we see that God blesses both rest and work. So if God blesses rest, then he's also going to be the one who blesses our work outside of that time. Sometimes we don't rest because we're so fearful that there's just too much stuff to be done. But can we trust God with our work as we seek rest in him as well? I'm I'm very aware that I'm throwing this idea out there at the end. But I'm convinced If Genesis 1 and 2 finds its climax in rest, then how we live our lives today should still be a part of that. Now, certainly, rest is going to be hard. There are going to be challenges. We live in a Genesis 3 world. But we don't completely live in a world that is only ever work, only ever uh, restlessness. We've got to find ways to represent... We've got to find ways to reflect that we are restored images in Christ and part of that will be how we rest as well. Let's begin those conversations. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. You are the powerful and mighty creator. Help us to believe and to remember and to embrace that you are the only true and living God. You are the one who's made everything. We owe all 
we owe everything to you. Heavenly Father, help us to see that it's your Son that it does all this as well, to bring him praise and glory in our allegiance, to remember that he is the one who sustains us. So as we worship you, as we reflect on our lives, help us to remember that Jesus is the one sustaining it all, holding it all together. And as we think about our lives and we, as we think about the purpose of creation, as, we've, as you've told us here, uh, to rest with you, help us not simply look forward to eternal rest with you, but to practice this once a week, to preach that gospel to ourselves once a week, that we are living for eternal rest, and to tell our world that life is not work, work, work. So we pray, Father, that you help us to work out, to, to fill in the details, to begin thinking through what this might look like, and that you'll bless us in these ways, that we might be people who are refreshed by you, refreshed in your presence, and live wholly for you joyfully. For we ask this all for the glory of Jesus and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.